0: Welcome to the SSI Orbit Podcast, a forum for conversations that explore the ever-growing ecosystems of self-sovereign identity. And I'm your host, Matzer Glod. Today I talk with Lohan Spies, the founder and CEO of Didex, a South African company focused solely on self-sovereign identity. Now, Lohan is a thought leader in the decentralized identity space and very well tapped into the pulse of the African continent. Now, Lohan also acts as the technical lead for the YOMA Foundation, which will be the main focus of the conversation today, YOMA, which is a UNICEF organization that's using SSI to empower African youth to learn, earn, and to create impact. Now, we start off the conversation by talking about what's happening in Africa, specifically with payments and identity. What are some of the differences on the African continent with identity and payments, and why ID is so important for financial inclusion. We then jump into YOMA, what's happening in the YOMA ecosystem, how YOMA looks at digital ID and about creating digital verifiable CVs within their ecosystem of education issuers and how youth could use these digital verifiable CVs to then go after earning opportunities with employers, another member of the YOMA ecosystem. We then jump into governance. Half of the story here for any digital trust ecosystem to really take off you need to have strong governance within a particular ecosystem so i was quite curious in talking to lohan about how yoma looks at governance from kind of a global yoma standpoint but also from a localized governance standpoint in specific countries and some of the work that they're doing at the trust over ip to build governance frameworks. And then in the latter half of the conversation, we talked about how Yoma has built their ecosystem, who are the different participants, how they look at both incentivizing participants to join on both the demand and supply side. Uh, We talked about some future looking things of how uh, specialized agents and intelligence are gonna play in to specific use cases like Yoma's. And we finish the conversation by talking about the impact economy. One of the goals of the yoma foundation and how technology could be used to better the planet now without any further ado here's my conversation with lohan enjoy i was looking at some interesting statistics on sub-saharan africa um just i think it's beneficial for listeners here that maybe don't have the the same exposure that that yourself does in the african content or at least in sub-saharan africa and i, I think there's some um, incredibly interesting statistics about that. I was just doing my homework here this morning. I think Africa just recently ha- has grown to be, to have like the largest working population in, uh, at least in 2020 in the world, like the working population in Africa is larger than anyone else, like any other continent in the world. Um, the median age for the continent is 14 years younger than any other and median age is at 18 now. So the, there's quite interesting phenomena happening in Africa. Uh, there's a lot of growth happening. I know there's um, there's been a lot of interesting things happening around mobile and connectivity um, and, and that that whole space where you know a lot of countries have been able to leapfrog, call it the traditional systems. Would love to hear from your perspective, just looking at a sub-Saharan Africa perspective, just really taking a macro perspective on this, kind of what what has been happening overall
1: so yeah that's a it's definitely um, an interesting aspect when it comes to africa if you if you look at the african continent uh, in general we we sit with an enormous amount of youth population and it is growing year by year and if you take so africa specifically before the before covid started we had quite a large number of unemployed youth on the African, well, in Africa specifically. And after COVID, that number just absolutely skyrocketed. So, and that is really where uh, YOMA comes in. And what we are actually trying to achieve is to really look at the youth and the upcoming generations from the African continent perspective and there are so much talent on the, on the continent in terms of uh, people and passion and motivation and ability. The big problem is just that not everyone have the same opportunities. So you have by far a large minority that have access to opportunities and need to uplift themselves and get access to good opportunities, good education and, and good employment. But by large, the the continent sits with what we call in the Yoma context specifically, we call them diamonds in the rough. There are a lot of youth that have a lot of potential, but they just don't have access to opportunity. And what we are trying to achieve with Yoma specifically is really to provide these youth with the ability to get access to um, opportunities from a learning perspective so that they can start Uh, uplifting themselves, upskilling themselves and then uh, utilize those newly acquired skills to actually get access to um, earning opportunities in terms of uh, employment. And one of the things about uh, the youth on the African continent is, especially in Africa where we have an absolutely enormous, um, I I don't know the exact percentage, but it's a very, very large percentage of youth is currently completely um, unemployed. And that is our future generation. If we really don't look after the youth, um, we are going to effectively create a scenario where the continent just won't grow to the full potential that it really can, um, purely because of the um, large amount of youth. So we are highly passionate about upskilling the youth and providing them with opportunities to to really play a major role in terms of future um, GDP, economic growth, as well as just contributing and being able to utilize those newly acquired skills to even furthermore uh, drive that value that they generate back into the communities. Because a lot of the communities um, actually don't necessarily have the capability to look after everyone so what happens is sometimes you might have one youth from a family of five or six, um, as example, and they'll take or, or send one youth to uh, go and uh, go into formal education. But then the subsequent scenario that happens is that that one youth member that then uplifts himself and in get into formal employment, actually need to start looking at the whole community from a family perspective. So the more that we can uplift the youth, uh, the more value it will generate, not only for themselves, but actually for that value to drive right down back into the community to look after the elders as well as other community members as well. Just again,
0: from, from a high-level perspective, um, I always like to look at two aspects. I think they, they're, they're basically the same at the end of the day when you start looking at it, but, but both identity and, and payments. Um, I'd be interested kind of, in what the landscape looks like in, in banking and payments and uh, accessibility in Africa today. And um, th- there's different countries in the world that are on kind of different uh, maturation points, I guess, in their banking or payment journeys. I think in in Canada and the US and in Europe and, and a lot of the Western cultures, we're still running on traditional banking rails. I think there's a lot of innovation that's come out of uh, countries like China on the digital side of things as they're moving more and more towards Uh, digital currencies and everything using mobile Um, are you seeing similar things would you say like what's happening on the african continent is maybe uh, moving closer to the the china model where everything's kind of digital to begin with like how how do people manage their finances and payments
1: well at the moment there's still a a, a very large uh, proportion of uh, of the africans that actually utilize cash and uh, a big part of the reason for that is because a lot of the the people don't have the ability to get credit or don't necessarily have foundational identity to even open a bank account. But the benefit of that in the long run is that you see an enormous amount of innovation and creative uh, products that are coming out from a fintech perspective. So in South Africa specifically There are a few products that already kind of move more towards the notion of what China is doing in terms of QR codes and how you can facilitate payments with QR codes. And then as we get more into the open banking API um, type of ecosystem, I believe that that the financial um, innovation in the fintech space will just uh, skyrocket and it will explode with all kinds of new capabilities and methods. For instance, um, in Kenya, there is, uh, I can't remember the name now, but there's a payment mechanism that effectively purely happens over SMS and USSD, And I believe that Africa have this potential to kind of leapfrog um, a lot of the old legacy infrastructure, purely because there's either nothing or there is um, kind of basic versions of financial ecosystems and availability for people without that for instance, to actually be part of a formal economy. And um, one of the one of the other things in in Africa is in terms of the sleepfrogging, I truly believe that that will happen, but we also have scenarios that prohibits that to currently happen to its fully to the full extent that it actually can. And that is really access to data and access to smartphones. Of course, with new technologies coming out, like Starlink, where internet access will become pervasive in in coming years, with smartphones becoming uh, cheaper. At some point, the majority of the population on the African continent will have the ability to have cheap internet access. They will have the ability to, to own a smartphone that can install apps. And once we get to that point, I believe that we are going to see fintech products that will just leapfrog the traditional financial system completely and if you combine that with things like uh, cryptocurrencies uh, there are ways that uh, people can actually start uh, utilizing those mechanisms not only to have a store of value but also being able to start transacting not only between themselves but across borders without all the friction of the traditional banking system but for that, all of that to really happen, it once again comes down, for me at least, uh, I believe that payments and identity goes hand in hand. You can't really do the one without the other. So to unlock all the amazing fintech companies that are, that are coming up in, from an African continent perspective, at some point, we also need to solve the identity problem. And once we solve the identity problem, where we can provide identity or self-sovereign identity to people that have no foundational identity and then allowing them to build up that identity. And then you combine that with these innovative fintech products. I think the combination of the two is really going to be the catalyst for, um, for payments and identity in, in Africa in general. I think
0: again, in a lot of uh, Western countries, the ID problem is maybe not the same ID problem in, in other places or countries in Africa. I think a, a lot of the times um, here in myself, I'm talking based in Canada. So the market, I know very well is that a lot of the innovations that are happening around ID uh, is definitely to give more accessibility and to empower the individual. But in a lot of industries, and if we're talking about like banking, payments, and these regulated industries, you're relying on government issued IDs to uh, give accessibility to people to kind of play in, in that whole space. Um, wh- what is what is the ID problem kind of in sub-Saharan Africa? And how does it differ in, in your point of view from the ID problem that we would maybe talk about to here where we're based in Canada?
1: So I think one of the primary problems when it comes to identity, um, and I'm not going to do it specifically in terms of sub-Saharan Africa, but more in Africa in general, is there are countries that don't have any form of foundational identity. Um, then the second problem is sometimes it's very difficult for people to actually go and register births. Um, so it, it creates a scenario where people don't necessarily have an identity, in terms of a a formal identity document or passport or driver's license. And on the other hand, you can also scale it up right to the point where it is completely on par with like a Canadian system. For instance, Africa have a very good identity um, system from a foundational perspective. Um, They want to expand it now where they even want to register children right at birth and then giving the foundational identity from birth and then it will stay with you for life. Um, But, when you look at the people that don't have identity, it is very, very difficult to then start becoming part of any formal economy. And I believe that self-sovereign identity can really play a major role in that aspect because self-sovereign identity can be utilized to start providing a form of identity to these individuals that might have no identity, And then they can start aggregating data points around that identity over a continuous um, uh, kind of interactions with different types of ecosystems and identity uh, partners that will then allow them to utilize that self-sovereign identity that they build up themselves to actually start utilizing that to become part of uh, the formal economy. And Africa is very unique in that perspective because you have kind of from from no for foundational identity all the way to this kind of very good foundational identity ecosystems. And I just, uh, yeah, from from my perspective, I believe that um, identity is not only about a foundational identity. I think if you start looking at all the different transactions that are taking place on a daily basis in a person's life, It might be a financial transaction, it might be all kinds of different types of transactions, but every one of those are effectively an interaction from an identity perspective. And one example of those is a project from grassroots economics in Kenya, where they utilize what they call CICs or community inclusion currencies. And it's effectively a a token-based system where they inject value into these ecosystems and then the communities can start utilizing those uh, community inclusion currencies to start paying for things like water or food, et cetera. And that is completely outside of any formal economy or foundational identity. But every time that they actually transact with those community inclusion currencies, what they are doing is they are just reaffirming and Ria from us, from a self-attestation perspective that it is still them, and they are still doing transactions and people that they're interacting with can vouch for those transactions to happen. So I think the combination where foundational identity is available, of course, that is uh, what will be utilized to, to get people to, to prove their identity. But I believe that Africa is in dire need of a solution that relies on this more what I call a continuous due diligence type of identity system where every transaction actually just retests and reaffirms that it's still you that are transacting on a daily basis. And yeah, I think I believe that that will really unlock a massive amount of potential for a lot of people on the African continent that currently are just completely excluded because they can't really prove who they are. That that's where the that's quite interesting. That that's where you see
0: if there's maybe not the right conditions coming from a government perspective or a public sector. It's interesting to see kind of if there's a market demand for something, people see opportunity. The private sector is able to kind of come up and and create solutions to, to these problems and. Uh, uh, it's quite interesting to see what has happened and kind of moving into Yoma now that UNICEF uh, as a, an NGO or non for profit kind of saw this opportunity and was able to, to, to push this forward. How, how did, now based on all the background you've kind of given the listeners here on what's happening in the African market and some of the issues here to do with identity and accessibility and inclusive, inclusivity? Um, how did Yoma come up, come about? How did it get started with UNICEF?
1: So Yoma actually came about from, uh, from Johannes Wittnich, uh who is the innovation um, manager at uh, UNICEF. And Johannes has done an absolutely enormous amount of amazing work um, over his career, but He basically created or or scheduled a few uh, design, human-centered design workshops with youth from all over the African continent. And the first one that I attended was in the beginning of 2020. And the objective was really to find out from the youth directly what are their problems and what are their needs. And through these workshops and human-centered design processes, what happened is that the youth effectively came to us and said you know what we have a lack of opportunity when it comes to um, education now when i refer to education here it is not in the traditional sense what we most probably from a western world will regard as education where it is a very formal process where you go through school and then you go into university this is really education at, at at any kind of level in terms of there are certain youth that do have the ability to go through the normal kind of Western view of education. But for the most part, most of them don't have that capability or they don't have that opportunity. So, first of all, they kind of identified that, you know what, we, we want access to some form of education, and we call it experiential learning. Experiential learning is really where the youth can start participating in an in a education opportunity without the need of having any prior experience or any prior skills. So they will then effectively learn these new skills on the fly as they participate in these opportunities. And that allows them to build up new skills. And then the second thing that they identified is, you know, once we have some form of education um, or for those that already have some education, there's a lack of um, access to earning opportunities and in in fact, um, employment. And the combination of the two, then basically led us down the path of creating Yoma. And what we wanted to achieve and what we are doing in terms of Yoma, the whole objective here is not only to uh, provide youth with earning or learning um, opportunities, but to kind of take them through this journey and to allow them to come onto the Yoma platform where they can participate in different types of learning opportunities, and as they participate in these opportunities, they get a, a, a digital identity because they uh, also stated that privacy is a very big aspect um, for them, something that they highly regard. And then as they participate in these learning opportunities, they build up every time they complete, they get a verifiable credential issued to them, building up the digital verifiable CV, and also creating a list of what we refer to it as a skills backpack. So they're kind of building up the CV, they're building up their skills backpack. And the more opportunities they participate in, the more they, the more rich and um, enhanced and um, I can say, and, and skills they they add to themselves. And then we also have this notion of a, a token. Call it a, a reward mechanism in the system to furthermore reward the youth to actually successfully complete these opportunities. Instead of coming onto the, um, or or participating in an opportunity and then uh, not completing it, there's a reward that are actually handed out to them once they successfully complete the opportunities that they can then utilize to actually go and redeem against the marketplace. And one of the key um, reasons for that might be, for instance, if a youth utilizes 100 megabytes of data to participate in an opportunity, they actually might not have the money to buy another 100 megs to participate in the next one. So these rewards are the mechanism for them to say, you know what, you have used, for argument's sake, 100 megabytes of data, here's the reward, you can go and buy 100 megabytes more so you can participate in the next opportunity. And then on the other side, as they now build up the CV, uh, what we would like to achieve is then to start matching them with uh, earning opportunities. And the matching would really happen primarily on the skills instead of the, the verifiable credentials. So uh, an employment partner can come into the ecosystem and say, you know what, I'm looking for, for argument's sake, for JavaScript skills in Kenya, in the specific province. And then we can start matching the, the, the demand side from an employment perspective with what the youth and the youth that have those skills available on the platform, and then provide the surety to the employer that the skills and the credentials from a CV perspective is actually true and factual. Um, so it makes it a very seamless process between the two um, as they build up the CV and then having access to these earning opportunities. And then another thing about the um, kind of educating the youth is also about a bit of it's a bit like an information overload. When you come onto a platform like Yoma and imagine there's a thousand different opportunities, it can be a bit overwhelming to choose what is good for me and which ones do I actually want to participate in, or which ones have, um, are kind of related to my my passion and what I would like to learn. So another thing that we want to build into the platform is what we call a customized learning paths. So as the youth come into the platform, they can kind of put an end goal and say, I want to become a software developer or I want to become a whatever the the end game for them might be. And then what we do from an artificial intelligence machine learning perspective is that we want to provide them with these customized learning paths to kind of just give them a path and a, and a, and a, and a kind of a, a map. So, you know, what, for you to get there, these are the suggested opportunities that you can participate in. So that is really where, where Yoma came about and how it came about. And we then, um, from the last workshop in the beginning of 2020, we said, fine, okay, you know what, let's go and build the MVP for this. And we built the MVP in the, the second quarter of 2020 and we launched it in July. And the platform has since grown kind of organically. We we have over 40,000 youth on the platform. We are now expanding um, to onboard more and more um, learning opportunity partners, as well as onboarding um, um, earning opportunity partners, the employer side, as well as we get a lot of requests from um, specific countries where they say, you know, we love this Yama concept but we want to make it our own, we want to localize it, we want to put it within a specific context. So for instance, Nigeria is one of them, Um, Benin, there are a few other countries as well that we are speaking to. And what we are going to do is we're going to take this whole platform of Yoma and actually implement it in the localized context where the country itself can then go and onboard all the learning opportunity partners and the earning opportunity partners to start scaling it from a localized level but it will always be under the umbrella or the governance from a high level, let's call it a a global um, Yoma platform. So that is where Yoma currently is and how it came about. And then one of the big next drives for us in terms of Yoma is what we refer to as green Yoma. And green Yoma is effectively um, the same concept as Yoma from a learning to earning perspective. The only difference is that Green Yoma would focus specifically on sustainable development goals and how we can load up different types of sustainable development goal projects. And it can be things like reforestation, and plastic cleanup. Uh, there are so many different types of uh, impact projects. And then enabling the youth to be the catalyst for change in terms of impact, for them to be the impact makers. So they'll then be the ones that will go and plant the trees, there will be some form of a um, monitoring and evaluation mechanism. We call those uh, verification articles. And that can be human, it can be algorithmic. That will then basically take these impact claims coming in from the youth and then verify the authenticity and validity of those. And what will come out on the other side is effectively uh, a proof of impact. And then the youth can not only be catalyst to make a change from an impact perspective at scale but also effectively in the future participating in the up-and-coming impact economy
0: there's a lot to unpack there
1: i um i think it's quite amazing
0: that this came out of workshops with actual end users it's always the best way to start uh, kind of the designing uh, a product uh, vision and kind of roadmap and what it looks like and i love the the iterative approach that Yoma has taken as well to to take this to market. Uh, I also love the economic incentive kind of mechanisms that you're building into there. I think both you and I coming from a a crypto or having spent a lot of time in in that space, we we always kind of see that playing a big part uh, here in in the whole ID stuff. Um, You mentioned governance and I think there's a lot of stuff that, I I want to kind of go into, you talk about the the youth are able to kind of get digital IDs, they're able to get verifiable credentials that kind of together turn into a digital verifiable CVs. Um, They're able to use the skills here to basically connect to employment opportunities or earning opportunities. And I'm assuming that with these sustainable opportunities, it'll be a similar type of thing. Um, love the whole token uh, thing in terms of the the governance of the system you kind of briefly mentioned at the end there that although there is a white labeling that would happen for different markets because they just have localized context uh, whether that comes to just the user experience basically of of, uh, these systems um could there be localized governance as well, kind of a second layer of governance? And I, I know you also you have a lot of background in decentralized governance, and you're you're the chair of the Sovereign Steward Council. You're on the board of trustees at the Sovereign Foundation, and you've spent a lot of time there. Tons of innovative work on the governance side of things has come out of Sovereign. Um, There's also a Yoma ecosystem task force that uh, is running at the Trust Over IP that has a lot of focus on uh, governance frameworks. Um, Do you mind going a little bit deeper into this? Because this is the one area that I think once people start to understand the technology behind all of this, it's like now, okay, to, to, to make this actually work for me to actually operationalize my system, I need to make sure that I have the proper governance frameworks in place to support this. So um, I know it's kind of a large question, but from kind of that global governance perspective and drilling it down to kind of a local governance perspective, uh, what is some of the work that has
1: happened, is happening, and what are your thoughts on all this? Yeah, so um, as everyone that that's kind of uh, well-versed in the self-identity space will know that the technology is just one part of the of the solution. Um, I think since I started in self-sovereign identity, the technology was initially kind of the hardest part and the most complicated. Um, with companies like Tinsic, uh, and a lot of open source developers, the technology is becoming easier and easier to adopt and to utilize. But the reality is, if you really want to build our trust ecosystem, you cannot do that without the governance side. And with Yoma, The the governance and the objectives in the long run is quite unique once again, um, because what we want to achieve is Yoma is really a, a platform that we would like at the end of the day, our end game would be that the youth own the Yoma platform, that the youth participate in the governance, that the youth effectively maintain and define and change the governance as they see fit. So even though we are there are multiple different partners. So we have people from UNICEF, we have people from Goodwill, from GIZ, the Thingy, um, Cartido. There are so many different ecosystem players like Generation Unlimited that are part of the Yoma ecosystem. Everybody plays a role. But in the long run, we would like the youth to completely take over the platform in terms of the governance and then defining the governance going forward. But for us to get there, we we uh, went to the Tassar IP Foundation and we set up a task force that is led by Nikki Hickman to define what we call um, a minimum viable governance framework for Yorba. And the first iteration of the governance framework focuses on certain aspects. For instance, we didn't include everything into the initial governance framework because it just becomes too complicated and we didn't have enough time instance, we don't go into like detail regarding the tokens um, from a governance perspective. We don't go into detail regarding the artificial intelligence machine learning, but we make notion of that and we know that it's coming. But what we want to achieve is by the end of September is to have this minimal viable governance framework under which YOMA can operate. And for the governance framework to primarily look at how can the governance framework and the platform work in the favor for the youth um, in all aspects um, as much as possible? And from that initial foundational or minimum viable governance framework, we will definitely create further iterations. But the objective would be that the governance framework that we are defining now cannot be too too complicated because once Yoma starts being localized, different countries, we would like them to have the freedom and the ability to start adding and adapting the uh, the governance framework, but never veering off from the foundational governance framework, which is basically the overarching um, governance framework. So another aspect of that as well is we are trying as much as we possibly can. I mean, it's very early days, but to also see how we can make as much as we can um, of the governance framework machine readable. So that we, for instance, have a trusted list of, of issuers and how uh, country offices, for instance, can utilize that same content con, uh, concept and go and create their own list of trusted issuers for a specific implementation, a localized version of, of YORMA. So governance is a very complicated thing and it, become, it can become very um, complicated and time consuming. Um, we are developing the first iteration in a short amount of time, just so that we can really get the platform, the technology and the governance side by side, have them working side by side and then learning from there and adapting and uh, uh, changing the governance as we move forward. But yeah, it's been a very, very interesting journey. And we are a lot of people and volunteers who have contributed to the governance framework to where we are today. And I'm quite looking. I'm, I'm really looking forward to have this first iteration of the governance framework that we can then launch YOMA as a full trust of our IP stack with both governance and the technology. And then just another thing that might not be completely related to governance, but in, in a sense it is, is we had the privilege to work with uh, Dr. Sarah Spickerman. Um, regarding a new standard called value-based engineering. It's the IEEE 7000 standard. And what we did there, just like we did with the human-centered um, design approach, is we went to the youth and said, fine, what are your values? And what do you expect from a system like this? And then the youth came up with, a a, a few high level um, values, for instance, trust is one of them, uh, consent is another one, privacy is another one, um, and then we went through this whole and very, very interesting project with uh, um, from a, um, we call it value-based engineering, and it kind of fundamentally changed the way that we thought about uh, system design, and ultimately it will feed into the governance as well, because suddenly it changes the game in terms of building a system in terms of what we think is best but actually now needing to start building a system and the governance for what the youth think is best and what they want so Yomas is once again it's very unique in terms of requirements and how we are building the system how we are defining the governance um and it is really because at the end of the day, this is not a platform or a solution that should be there for um, the economic benefit for the creators and the contributors, but this is really for the, uh, for the contribution and the benefit of the youth. So yeah, everything when it comes to Yoma is really youth-centric. Um, it is in relation to providing them with agency control in terms of the data, and uh, how the governance can ensure that that is actually the case, and we uphold uh, or uphold those principles in terms of making that, making sure that the platform is really built for the youth and to a large degree by the youth.
0: The whole concept of value-based engineering is quite quite interesting on its own, and I'm sure uh, it's uh, there's so much excitement with these types of things and. Uh, I'm sure there's, there's multiple lanes happening at once with Yoma where it's kind of like stuff that needs to get to market and minimum viable products, but there's also kind of uh, a lot of R&D work that's happening as well to really achieve uh, the grander mission in the years to come. Um, you talked a bit about the turning governance into something that's machine readable. Um, I think that, that's one of the cool things and I know you're a huge advocate for open source projects as well. That's what's so awesome about the whole web three space or open source projects is you you get to play Legos with stuff, right? You're able to reuse pieces. And even if you want to uh, tweak certain things, you're able to, and you're able to get it out to your users that much quicker. Um, There's a lot of different, I guess, types of entities or parties that are within the OMA ecosystem. And again, I'm sure there's a phased approach to, to kind of build it out and some some sides that need to happen before others um, when you mentioned just kind of the simple thing that you're trying to make machine readable is kind of a, the trust registry for issuers for example that was one of my uh thoughts when you were kind of describing the yoma ecosystem is that for, from a foundational perspective you're enabling the youth to have digital ids and then to, to receive verifiable credentials um I think for anyone that's tried to build an ecosystem solution, you always have this uh, this chicken and egg problem, as as we call it, where it's kind of like um, there will be demand for something, but you need to create the supply uh, on the other side. And the, in a lot of these cases, in self sovereign identity, it's being able to create a supply of verifiable credentials. And if I have a supply of verifiable credentials in my network um I, I could create some value for the other side and, and there could be demand for that and in Yoma's case an example of that will be kind of employers that are, are looking for uh for youth that, that have certain skill sets um how, how did Yoma go about or is going about still at building up this ecosystem and was that an issue kind of building both sides at the same time and also who Who are the trusted issuers of credentials in in Yoma's
1: ecosystem? Yes, so um, when it comes to Yoma, um, our biggest hurdle is really not um, being able to get access to youth. Um, Through the partners in the platform, we have the ability to reach millions of youth fairly easily. The biggest and the most difficult part is really creating the ecosystem in terms of uh, opportunity providers, in terms of learning, as well as in um, um, earning or employment providers. But we were very fortunate that we started off within the group of contributors to Yoma, we started off with a very good and high quality set of learning providers. For instance, uh, Atingi is one of them, Goodwall. Um, is another one. Then we have Cartido, uh, Umuzi. So at this stage, when it comes to the opportunity providers, when when we started the MVP, we started off with what we currently call them um, trusted um, ecosystem partners. And initially, when we built the MVP, we said, you know what? At that stage, we didn't have SSI implemented to a point where everybody would get um, an identity or an agency in terms of ecosystem partners. So the first version and iteration of Yoma, we had Yoma as the only agent within the ecosystem. And we effectively proxied all the uh, issuance of credentials on behalf of ecosystem partners. So the only identities we had in the system is we had identities provided to every single youth member. And then we had Yoma that had its own agency and we proxied all those credentials from the, from the learning group, um, opportunity providers. And now the second iteration that we are basically close to, it's already um, available and the opportunity partners already have access to that capability is now to actually start scaling out the SSI capability across the ecosystem. So instead of Yoma being the only issuer in the ecosystem, every ecosystem partner in terms of learning or earning Will now have their own agency they will act as an issuer within this ecosystem and they will have a direct relationship with the youth we just effectively provide the platform for that to happen and we already have we have a, a form on the yoma website for any um opportunity provider that wants to become part of the ecosystem we have like a type form where they can go and show interest And we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people or companies for that matter that want to become part of the ecosystem. But we never opened the doors in terms of scaling it out until we had the SSI capability implemented from a technical perspective that is done now. And the second part of that is the governance framework. As soon as we have both of those implemented and ready, we will effectively start opening it up completely where anyone can come and apply, we will effectively do some basic vetting against them, and then they will become an agent in the ecosystem. They will connect with youth and they will provide some value either on the learning or earning side, and then they will either play um, in the role of an issuer or a verifier. And that is where, again, um, from my experience, building out these trust ecosystems, you can't just immediately make it available for everyone. Um, the more we build the system, the more we realize that we need to effectively bootstrap it to create a true trust ecosystem. So that we know who are the players within the ecosystem, that we can create a registry of who are the issuers, um, and that the youth know who they're connecting to. We have a registry of schemas that the ecosystem partners can can utilize to issue credentials against, so they can't just go and create any random schema in the ecosystem at this stage, and. Once we have the, the governance and the technical side at the end of September, let's say um, early in October, the objective would then be to to really start scaling it out um, and building out the ecosystem. And we are doing it currently from a let's call it a global Yoma perspective. But as we localize Yoma um, into Nigeria, as example, the Nigerian um, the Nigerian country office will effectively then start onboarding their own ecosystem partners. And each one of these country offices already have a a very big network of both learning and earning opportunity providers. So that will allow us uh, to actually scale out quite rapidly to onboard all these different providers. And once we have the scaling out um, capability in terms of SSI, as well as the ability for them to become issuers being added to the registry, the schema registry, et cetera, from a governance perspective, then we can actually open the floodgates in terms of getting and exposing the platform to to more and more youth. And the reason being is we need to have enough um, opportunities in the platform before we can really scale out to the youth. So the next step of Yoma is going to be very, very interesting. And it's really going to be our next proof point is. We've built a platform. We have around 40,000 youth on the on the platform at this stage. We have around five or six uh, trusted uh, learning opportunity partners. We're still building out uh, and getting um, and speaking to earning opportunity providers. But our next step is really to, um, from a younger perspective, is to localize it specifically in Nigeria, and then to use that as a baseline to prove how we can scale it out. Um, properly from both sides, supply demand and then use that as call it a a repeatable model that we will then follow to scale out to other countries as well. That's amazing. I I totally agree with
0: the the approach as well. If you you try to decentralize everything and scale something decentralized too quick, uh, you're not going to have a good outcome (laughs) coming out of it. Um, I, I kind of mentioned earlier when we were talking about kind of the on the comment of value-based engineering, and I'm sure that Yoma has uh, a really good R&D lane at at the same time of of deploying these things. There's a lot of interesting things that are innovations and stuff that I know you have been thinking about as well. One of them in particular, I'd be interested in getting kind of a sense of where your head is at, is kind of on the agent perspective of things and as it relates to the skills backpack. And so I, I, I think that what is going to happen with a lot of people that are building trust ecosystems is that as you start creating a supply of credentials, um, there needs to be some algorithmic component that allows you to to gain value from these credentials and allows the demand side to gain value from these credentials. So, I may be uh, collecting credentials based on education that I'm doing from, from different sources, but maybe some of them combined together creates a lot more value for um, an an employer on on the other side of things. And so for the skills backpack, um, and then kind of thinking about the future of of agents, um, uh, do you see some opportunities to create some smart agents that can kind of facilitate these transactions? And I'm I'm assuming, I don't know if we have
1: the same vision on this, but I'm sure there's going to be a lot of specialized agents that are going to be coming out. Absolutely. I definitely believe that once credentials or verifiable credentials are um, once we start issuing them at scale, a verifiable credential by itself, depending on what type of credential it is, um, but let's take Yoma as an example. So let's say we issue a credential that says this youth member participated in that opportunity and he successfully completed that opportunity. That credential in itself is valuable to the youth it's valuable in building up the digital CV, but the true value is actually in the Yoma case is not that specific credential. It is what I call effectively something like a, de- a derivative credential being generated from the, the credential that, that was issued in the first place. So for me, one very big component that is going to be required in verified credential world, SSI world, and smart agents is the ability to start understanding these credentials and then extracting derivative forms of value. And in the Yoma case specifically, it's like, fine, you have gone through this process of doing experiential learning to do some UI UX opportunity or course as example, but what's the actual skills that you learn? And those are going to be the most important skills in the Yoma ecosystem, because at the end of the day, the employment is not going to happen um, by asking, hey, did you, did you participate in the experiential learning opportunity for JavaScript developer? That is not really the fundamental value. The fundamental value is going to be, hey, I have, I have this derivative um, credential that's been issued to me by a smart agent that knows how to look at the data and create these derivative credentials. And I can now issue you with a credential that says, you know, you, you know JavaScript at the level 8 out of 10 or 5 out of 10. So I completely and honestly believe that artificial intelligence, machine learning, smart agents um, will play a major role in verifiable credentials going forward, especially once we start really generating these credentials that scale around the globe. And also for the ability for people to effectively start buying services from these smart agents, where uh, another example might be where, um, as example, you get your bank statements in a verifiable credential format. Now that is useful in some cases, but what is much more, much more useful is uh, a credit score derived from the, those bank statements. And the credit score is not going to be given to you necessarily by the bank, it might be, but I, I believe there's going to be a whole market of uh, smart agents that will have the ability to, to take these raw data, understand them and then to uh, create these derivative credentials that actually unlocks and extracts the true value of the raw data at the end of the day. So yeah, I definitely see that becoming um, a big focus area once credentials become pervasive. Yeah, and I think in a lot of cases
0: too um, I think we're, we're moving more and more towards a new economy, fueled, fueled by the internet, fueled by borderless opportunities. Um, I think a lot of these traditional methods for um, creating a score or a reputation, however you want to call it, on someone like a credit score derived from banks sending data to, to a credit bureau, I, I think there's going to be a lot more opportunities to create stuff that have value for internet-native use cases. Um, just in closing here, I, I know uh, you have experience as well, um, having, you, you founded a company or were founder of a company in 2017 that was trying to use blockchain for impact uh, to, to help individuals and to help organizations around the world achieve sustainable development goals. That was one of the objectives that you mentioned of Yoma a little earlier in the conversation where you um, you could create learning to earning opportunities, but you could create learning to earning to impact opportunities. And so you kind of mentioned a little bit of a re- reforestation or plastic cleanup. Um, well, what's your vision on kind of combining all of this in the future and with this whole incentive mechanism and in design and uh, how impactful do you think uh, this could actually be? Is, is this the solution to really <laughs> Uh, fueling the impact economy beyond what, what's happening right now by small groups of investors?
1: Absolutely. Um, so if you look at Yoma and the platform that we are building, uh, we are using Sovereign uh, at the moment as our de facto identity-based ledger. But Yoma will ultimately consist of, uh, for instance, Sovereign. It might consist of uh, a check network where there's a token where issuers where verifiers can pay issuers. It also consists of the startup that you are mentioning is called IXO, we call it, uh, the whole objective is to build the internet of impact. And then there are also um, a lot of other different types of networks like grassroots economics in terms of community inclusion currencies, um, region network. And Yoma will ultimately be a culmination of a lot of these different Web3 technologies, a lot of these different Web3 uh, solutions that's already built up and the combination will Will create YOMA as a whole going forward. But to come back to your question about the impact economy, um, one of the fundamental flaws in the impact economy and sustainable development in general uh, today is we have these very ambitious um, sustainable development or impact projects around the world, but the attribution is effectively very generic. And what I mean by that is, we might have a project in a specific country where uh, donors invest into the project, and they say, you know what, let's go anti- and try um, and I don't know, deliver mosquito nets to the whole population. The problem is that you get funding into these projects. There is a lot of impact that happens on the ground, but when it comes to when it comes to uh, attribution, we basically get this report that is generic for everyone. We get this one report and say, you know what, this is the money that we received and this is the impact that we that we claim to have achieved. And that can be true, it can be false. Um, it's very, very difficult to, to prove. So, what we wanted to do with IXO, and IXO is effectively now that it launches mainnet, so it, it's definitely going um, on the right path. But what we want to do is to, first of all, create the ability to create um, verifiable proof of impact. Meaning you change this whole narrative where you can create the impact project where investors can invest in these projects, but then the attribution comes back and say, you know what, you put in $10 and I can prove to you that these 10 people actually received mosquito nets. And the reason being because the whole premise of the, of, of, of that platform is based on identity. It's based on self-souder identity. So it is on based on the premise of identity. And then from there, you basically work up in terms of how the impact claims coming to the project, how it's monitoring, how it's monitored and evaluated, and how the, the proof of impact is then, um, the actual credential of proof of impact is then um, uh, provided as an outcome. And once we have the ability to prove impact, achieve, achieving impact at scale in a verifiable credential format, it will unlock a complete new economy. And the closest that we have today to an impact economy is carbon credits. And carbon credits is created, they are generated, they are traded, but it is still very um, opaque in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a big sense. But I truly believe, especially in, uh, if you look at the climate change and the state of the world, that the impact economy is going to be absolutely enormous. And it is something that will be developed and it will really be unlocked by Web3 technologies. So the more, we utilize these new types of technologies and tokenization and token engineering and crypto economics, we can effectively create new markets that never existed before. Just like you can trade um, silver or gold or fiat currencies or cryptocurrencies, why can't we trade um, reforestation? And uh, for instance, the extrinsic value that that brings to a community that actually contributed to uh, reforest uh, a piece of land. So it is uh, a definitely a, an up and coming um, area, or call it an, it's exactly what it will be an economy. Um, but I believe that the underlying thing that will unlock that is ultimately going to be verifiable credentials. And a lot of the times when we speak about self-sovereign identity, we kind of inherently assume it is related to identity in the terms of opening a bank account or getting a COVID credential to board a flight or access a restaurant. But actually verifiable credentials is so much more, um, especially in, if, you, if you look at the impact economy. And we will also, like I mentioned, um, add other capabilities to it, like these verifiable uh, or, or verification oracles that will then be able to interrogate from a smart agent perspective interrogate these claims being made and then derive the value from that. And you can even take that whole notion um, all the way to to impact bonds, where you can effectively significantly reduce administration cost of impact bonds so that more money can flow in actually achieving impact. So a long story short, I've been involved in a few different projects when it comes to self-sovereign identity or verifiable claims. And it's kind of uh, interesting how everything that i've been involved in been involved in the last five years are currently be- it's, it's kind of going full circle where we are taking all the bits and pieces of what we've been developing and especially in the in the sense of Yoma, is adding them all together and then utilizing all these different technologies not only to upskill youth and provide them with employment but also then to utilize that to start really making impact at scale and utilizing the youth catalyst, and then to also enable the youth to participate in this complete new economy—the impact economy—that will that will start formulating in the coming years. That's beautiful. Um, so, for, for listeners, we'll put some links in the show notes to to Yoma and to how to get in touch with uh,
0: Lohan if you're looking to to learn more or see how you could contribute to, to any of uh, his initiatives uh lohan thank you so much for doing this with me today um, you're great to talk to super insightful and, and i really look forward to doing this again thank
1: you very much matthew
0: it was a very interesting discussion thanks for tuning in today hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as i did to step to speed with future episodes or to catch up on ones you may have missed make sure to check out the SSI Orbit podcast on your favorite podcast platform and make sure you subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or wish to see someone in particular on a future episode, you can find me by searching Matzir on LinkedIn or Twitter. Feel free to reach out to me directly and I'll get back to you. See you all next time.